Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for ways in which we've already been instructed. Thank you for your word that is sufficient for us and encouraging to us, helpful to us, transformative for us. And um, both in this hour and the next hour, we're dealing with topics that people are reticent to talk about. And so would you give us uh, your wisdom and your instruction, give us clarity in our own minds about what the word of God has to say. And might we speak unflinchingly and hesitatingly about these things, but kindly and graciously and tenderly, helpfully. And uh, would you um, would you use us uh, to minister uh, to people who are hurting in both of these areas? Uh, would you give me wisdom as we talk uh, that your time would be used well? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so a couple of weeks before my wife and I got married, my father said to me um, something like, uh, son, you know, um, um, son, we um, never really uh, talked much about this subject, but, you know, um, you're about to get married. Um, and I think that, you know, it would be helpful if you would read this book. I said, um, thanks, Dad. That's helpful. Uh, Regine and I have already read it together. Oh, great. In a conversation, and I don't know what we talked about after that, but that was the extent of the sex talk from Dad two weeks before marriage. Um, this is a topic that's really hard to talk about. Kevin and I were just just talking about it, right? Dan and, and, and you know, somebody's got to say these things. Uh, when I first preached 1 Corinthians 7, this passage in church, I came home from church. I think our oldest was in junior high at the time. And I, I never probed much after preaching with the kids, you know, asking them. I never interrogated them about what they thought or anything. But that day I wanted to know. So at the dinner table, at the lunch table, I said, so what y'all think of the sermon? Silence. No, really, I'd like to know. Give me some feedback. What do you think? Silence. No, help me understand, you know, what did you take away? <laughs> Finally, the oldest, who's not very bashful about expressing her opinions. Dad, you can't talk about that stuff in church. <laughs> well, yeah, that's ironic because God did in his Bible. And he's got a whole book about sex in the Bible. So God's not afraid to talk about it. We, we need to not be afraid to talk about it. We need to speak graciously, gently, appropriately. We've got a mixed audience here and I am sensitive to that. And so we're going to talk about those things in that way. But brothers and sisters, we've got people who are hearing all kinds of stuff outside these walls. And it is directly contrary to this. And it's so, so destructive. And we've got life-giving words and hopeful words and we've got to be speaking them. And I, I have taught this, I don't know how many times in this context, in the counseling room, many times, and everybody always says, why has nobody ever told me this? This is revolutionary. So um, I trust you will find it to be that way. Um, so 1 Corinthians 7. Um, two thoughts are going to guide us today. One, the main thought, and these are the two takeaways. If you forget everything else that I'm going to talk about, particularly in relation to the text, if you walk away with these two ideas, you're going to walk away with the main message of the text. And that is, you are not your own. 
right? You have been bought with a price. So that's verse 20 of chapter 6. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And isn't it interesting that immediately after saying glorify God in your body, he goes to talking about sexuality. And so Paul is not afraid of that. And he is, his whole point is you've been bought by God to be redeemed from sin and to use your physical body in particular ways, even within the context of marriage and the physical relationship with a spouse. And you need to act on that reality that you've been bought by him and he has a particular purpose. You're, you don't get to choose. Uh, you don't get to do this, uh, make decisions on your own. And that's just reminding me of something I was going to read from here in a little bit. Um, second thesis. Sexual intimacy in marriage is not only or ultimately for you. So people come into sex and it's like, they come into marriage and say, oh, now I get to experience sex. Well, that's true, but, big but, big caveat, it's not for you. It's for your spouse. And it's for you to give as a gracious gift of love, not something to take as if it is owed to you. And that turns everything on its head. Uh, from what you hear in the culture, as well as what most people have been taught, Uh, within the context of the church. Uh, We need to understand the culture in which the New Testament was written. Um, Early Christianity um, and early Christian thought about sexuality was influenced significantly by Greek thought. Uh, And there were two primary ideas in Greek thought about the relationship between body and soul. One was that what I do with my body doesn't matter. Because the only thing that matters is my soul, so I can do anything with my body and it doesn't, it doesn't matter because it's not impacting my soul. And my soul is the only thing that matters and that leads to extreme licentiousness. And the other aspect is, is this idea about um, asceticism and the body is to be punished and dealt with harshly. And you've got both of those ideas infiltrating and impacting the church and that's affecting the way people are thinking. So... Within the Roman uh, context in which in which um, Corinthians was written, right under the Roman Empire, there are four primary kinds of marriage in that day. So there was tent companionship. So that's between a, a, a man and a, his female slave. And so as long as that woman is a slave and as long as he wants her to be his companion, that she would come into his tent and have relations with him as if she's his wife, though she's not his wife. It's just tent companionship, so to speak. Then there's uh, common law marriage. It was recognized as being married after a year of cohabitating, and it's not really dissimilar from cohabitation as we have it uh, today in America and even in Texas. Uh, Common law marriage today, in fact, the state of Texas, I've discovered this the hard way, if a couple presents themselves as being married, even if they are not married, and they have been cohabitating for two years or more, they are considered by the state of Texas to be married. They don't have to get a license. They don't have to sign on the dotted line. They are, in the state of Texas, considered to be married if they've been cohabitating and present themselves as Mr. and Mrs. And they have rings. And that was a couple in our church, and... It was the very scenario, and it really, it helped to know that because it really influenced how we counseled them. 
So common law marriage, Roman culture, Texas culture, very much the same. Whoops. Um, then there was purchased marriage. So a father might sell his daughter to a man for, for her to be that man's wife. And then something uh, very similar to our marriage, a traditional marriage, where the ceremony looked much like our ceremonies. But even there, divorce was very common. There's at least one testimony in ancient literature about a man that was married more than 20 times, 26 times, I think, is the one particular uh, that I saw. So marriage was not treated with the dignity that you would want, with even within the context of the culture. Again, not horribly dissimilar from today. Uh, MacArthur writes in his commentary, the early church had members that lived together and were still living together under all four marriage arrangements. It also had those who had multiple marriages and divorces. Not only that, but some believers had gotten the notion that being single and celibate was more spiritual than being married, and they disparaged marriage entirely. Perhaps someone was teaching that sex was unspiritual and should be forsaken altogether. And that influence from the culture and people trying to fight against it and people embracing it, both things, had led some to say to the Apostle Paul in a letter that they had written to him that it is good, verse 1, chapter 7, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And I think what Paul is doing in 7-1, we don't have, Greek language didn't have quotation marks, so he didn't have a way to designate um, this is what you had said, but I think he is quoting from their letter. So he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, and now he begins the quotation. So we might put quotation marks. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, what did they write? It is good for a man not to touch a woman, end quote. And so now he's going to respond to that. So within the context of the marriage, because of all this stuff that's going on culturally, they're saying, you know what, we can just bypass all these problems if, if even within the context of marriage, men and women, husband and wife, don't come together in physical union for sexual relationship. And then it just bypasses all, all those problems. And so Paul's addressing that issue. Is that correct? So he's writing to correct all of that ungodly influence and ungodly thinking. So what does Paul say? So here, let's dive into the text. Verse 2. Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. Each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Um, let's stop there. So let me give you, I think about, um, well, after I take out those three, uh, seven principles that I think Paul unfolds in this passage. First principle, sex and marriage is pure and holy. Um, sex... Um, is designed by God. It is a gift from God to the couple. So when Paul says in verse 2, each man is to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband, there he's referring back to the institution of marriage. There is an institution of marriage and the husband and wife are given to each other 
And though he doesn't spell it out, clearly we are to understand they're given to each other by God, right? So this institution has been given to us by God. It's God ordained and even the having, and he's there using that as a euphemism for their physical union together. Even that having is something that comes from God as a gift to them. So it's created by God. We can go back to Genesis chapter two and see that God created it and he called it very good. And so it's honorable from the very beginning. And we can say it this way. God has created it. God is not ashamed of it. And God likes it. When a married couple comes together in physical union, God smiles as it were. It's favorable to him. It's a delight to him. It's pleasing to him because the husband and wife are doing what he created them to do. In fact, it's not only created by God, but it is called honorable even after sin entered the world. So you can go back to Genesis 2 and say, well, yeah, but there's no sin that's corrupted and twisted this thing. Of course it's good. After that, it's not good. No, 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 no. The marriage bed is to be held in honor, right? It's honorable even after sin enters the world, Hebrews 13. Sin has not made the fundamental purpose of sexuality dishonorable. Now, you've got to hear carefully what I said. The fundamental purpose as it was created to be is not dishonorable. Obviously, there are lots of permutations and twistings and perversions of it that are dishonorable. But the way God designed it is not dishonorable. In fact, marriage is an act of worship that is done for God's glory. So then, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Which is to say that there is a way for a husband or wife to be engaged in sexual relationship with each other in the context of marriage that brings glory to God. It reveals his nature, it reveals his character, and it honors him. In fact, let's not forget verse 20 of chapter 6. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And then he launches into that, which is to say, this is how you glorify God with your bodies in your sexuality within the context of marriage. Um, Paul Tripp says in his book, Sex and Money, sex is an act of worship and the true worship of God will determine what happens in your sexual life. In sex, you are always worshiping something. Your sexual life is shaped by the worship of God, the worship of self, the worship of the other person, or the worship of what you get out of sex. What this means is that in sex, you and I are always surrendering our hearts to something. So how we think about and practice sexuality reveals what we're wanting in our hearts, what we're desiring, what we're worshiping. And that is also to say that we can worship rightly and reflect God's glory in our sexuality within the context of marriage. So I'll say it this way. Sex in marriage is as holy as praying, reading the Bible, preaching, giving, teaching Sunday school, um, listening to Awana verses. It might be said that even in, even that it might even be said that sexual relations in marriage are a spiritual discipline 
in that it is an honorable way to reflect God's glory and our love for Christ and our submission to Him. Things have been so twisted in the culture, it's hard to see it that way, isn't it? But God's given it as a gift and He has designed a husband and wife to have each other in that physical union. Principle number two, sex and marriage is a gift to protect our purity. Sexual relations in marriage are not only holy, but they are designed to keep us holy. Did you catch the first phrase of verse 2? Because of immoralities. To keep you out of immorality, you have a wife with whom you should practice sexual union. You have a husband with whom you should practice sexual union so that you don't do it in ways that the world has perverted. Which is to say that sexual intimacy in marriage is a protection. So let me ask the question. Is preservation of purity a legitimate reason to have sex in marriage? Yes. That's what the text is telling us. You should be regular with one another so that you don't look for an illegitimate use of your sexuality. Now, caveat. That doesn't mean sex is the only reason for marriage. But it does mean that it's a substantive part of it. It's not the only thing. Sex does not equal marriage and marriage does not equal sex. And yet you can't disconnect them from each other. They're integrally involved with one another. Um, Sexual desires within the context of marriage do have a legitimate outlet. Now, I think it's, it's helpful for us to ask, can one maintain purity and be celibate all of their life and not get married so that they can give themselves in wholehearted devotion to the Lord? That's at about the middle, uh, three quarters of the way through the chapter, right? Starting verse 32. That's a legitimate question to ask. So Paul says in verse 9, Uh, verse 8 and 9, I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I, single, right? Devoted to the Lord. But if they don't have self-control, if they they have this desire um, for sexual relations that they're having trouble controlling, let them marry because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Better to be married and carry out those desires in a legitimate way within the context of marriage uh, than, than to struggle with that all of your life and not be married. So I think we need to ask our singles, can you be celibate? And in, the, in your celibacy, can you then commend yourself to ministry of the word in some way that's going to far exceed what you're going to be able to do as a married man or married woman? Uh, That's a legitimate question to ask. It's worth testing. Um, Somebody did that for me. Hey, can you handle it? And I was pondering that, and in all honesty, I was leaning that direction. Let me give it a shot. And then my wife showed up. She wasn't my wife at the the time yet, obviously, but she showed up, and it was like, okay, forget that. (laughs) That was a bad idea. But what I want you to see here is with this statement in verse 2, Paul and God are giving a hearty no 
to the Corinthian idea and philosophy of verse 1. And he's exhorting the believers to engage in full conjugal life with their spouses. So Randy Alcorn writes, God wants sex to be enjoyed so much in marriage that there will be no compulsion to have sex outside of marriage. Enjoy it. It's a gift. God's given you to have a spouse. Enjoy that in the sexual union with each other. Principle three. Sex is not the basis for marriage. Marriage is not first and foremost a a physical union. So we would say sex is part of marriage, but it does not equal marriage. It's not all about sex. Um, It is about protection, but it's not. The one does not equal the other. What's the main reason for marriage? Companionship. Glorify God. To display Christ in the church. Ephesians 5.33. That's the reason for marriage. Um, You're familiar with Ephesians 5. Paul says this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking about the union between Christ and church. What's the mystery there? The mystery isn't this the union of husband and wife. That's been known since Genesis 2. We know what that is. That's not something that's been hidden. What's been hidden since Genesis 2? That marriage is a revealer of the love of Christ for his church. That's that's the main reason for marriage, to demonstrate to the world this is how Christ loves the church and how the church responds to Christ's love. So so that needs to be our focus even within the context of sexuality. That also means that it is more important to improve your fellowship with Christ than to improve your sex life. So all those, you know, little glossy magazines that you see at the grocery store checkout counter about improving your sex life, just throw those away. Don't buy them. And don't encourage anybody else to buy them. That's not the secret to a good sex life. The secret to a happy sexual union within the context of marriage is fellowship with Christ. You have a husband that's in fellowship with Christ and a wife that's in fellowship with Christ. They're going to enjoy their union together, whatever it is, however that looks. Okay. Um, So David Pallison writes, don't make it your goal in life to have a good marriage or a good sex life. Instead, make knowing your Redeemer your goal. Only He can teach you to love. Only He can change your heart towards your spouse. So the goal is fellowship with Christ, and then out of the fellowship with Christ, after putting first things first, then second, third, fourth things follow. So all this stuff comes out of our uh, fellowship with Christ. That, is, that absolutely flies in the face of our culture. Um, came across this article a year or two ago um, out of the Gospel Coalition, and they were um, writing to some things um, that were going on culturally. It's a lengthy article. It's called Apologetic Approaches to Biblical Sexuality. Apologetic Approaches to Biblical Sexuality. They write this. In our culture, sex is no longer seen as a way to honor God and to create and nurture new human life. Most believe something like this. If you want to use sex for the development of new human life, that's an option and your choice. But it's not the primary reason people have sex. Rather... Sex is for individual fulfillment and self-realization. So all the gender discussions, um, all the... I was filling out some form somewhere this week. 
And it's like, what's your gender? And honestly, I had to look up and figure out, I'm a guy. They didn't have guy there, right? It's, it was cis male. What's a cis male? Well, that's your gender assignment at birth, which is what I believe. But even, even typical nomenclature isn't used and it's being thrown out, right? So you get to choose your own identity and that's how sexuality is used as an expression of how you view yourself. They go on. This modern view of identity is often called expressive individualism. The idea that deep within are feelings and desires that must be discovered and unlocked and expressed to become a true self. Identity is now found in one's desires, while in the past it was found in one's duties and relationships with God, family, and community. Determining and acting on your sexual desires is considered a key part of that process of becoming an authentic person, whatever that means. Today, he says, this view of identity is not conveyed with arguments, but rather is expressed as a simple given not to be questions. questioned. Slogans such as be true to yourself and live your own truth are repeated in countless ways, verbal and nonverbal, and sink deep into people's hearts. So sexuality is all about me and my self-identity and my self-expression. And Paul is turning all that stuff on its head. And so where you need to take the couples that are struggling in their areas in the area of sexuality, as well as your young people that are coming, coming to you who are single, that are struggling with sexual identity, that are struggling with masturbation, you bring them to this text and show them what God intended it to be. Fourth principle, the primary goal of sex is giving, of providing for your spouse. So he says in verse 3, the husband must... Fulfill his duty to his wife. That word fulfill is a command. That means something like he must give fully, completely, without reluctance, without hesitation, or without inhibition. It's a duty, a requirement, an obligation. The word duty as it's used here, is, the, is a, a reference to doing something with the idea of doing good to the other person. It's an obligation that is a non-negotiable. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Notice the mutuality And that's going to run all through this passage. There's not a different responsibility for the husband and the wife. They have the same obligation to each other. And when I teach this, I say, you know, it's it's a duty. You have to do this. Now, it's a pretty fun duty. But it is a duty. You've got a requirement here to not withhold from each other. But to give. And this is the duty of the husband and of the wife. A um, couple of implications. You can make the message of this word, this verse in four words. Don't deprive your spouse. So you can imagine if the Corinthians are saying to the Apostle Paul, verse 1, 
It's good for a man not to touch a woman. What's going on? Somebody in that marriage is unilaterally deciding, we're done. And Paul's saying, you don't have a right to do that. You've got an obligation. You have something, in a sense, that needs to be repaid uh, to your spouse. Stop depriving. Now, as soon as I say that, don't hear me say this. Every time your spouse asks, you have to say yes. That's not what I'm saying. It's a present tense, which means continually on an ongoing basis, you have a duty. That doesn't mean every single time. There are legitimate reasons on a given night when a husband or a wife might say, thank you for the offer of the gift. It's not a gift tonight because. And can we, can we try tomorrow night or the next night? That, Paul's saying you, you don't have a right to deprive ongoingly, though intermittently, perhaps at a given time, it's okay to say, not tonight. I don't feel well. The kids have been after me all day. I haven't thought about it. It's late. I'm getting up early. I've got to, I've got to get up at four for a meeting at work. Can we hold it off a day or two? Paul's not saying every single time makes it an object of deprivation. So I don't want you to encourage your counselors. I don't want you to go home to your wife and say, you've got a duty. You can't ever say no. That's not what Paul's saying. Just never get in the practice of doing what's going on in verse 1. It's just good not to even touch each other physically and not to be engaged. He's also reminding us that sexual intimacy in marriage is not a superfluous extra. So marriage doesn't equal sex and sex doesn't equal marriage, but it's also not just one of those, well, if it happens, it happens and it's an extra. No, no, no. It's fundamental. It's an obligation. It's a duty. It's a necessity. You have to be engaged in it with each other. He also means us to understand that sexual intimacy in marriage is an expression of selfless giving. It's about giving, not about getting. And we'll flesh this out over the next couple of verses as well. So Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, right? That, that philosophy, that theology undergirds this. It's a blessing to give the gift of sexuality to your spouse more than it is to get the gift from your spouse. It's about saying to your spouse, I have I have this obligation to you. I want to make sure you're taken care of. Can I give you this gift? And the spouse says, yeah, that would be a gift. Thank you. Or no, it's not a gift tonight. But it's never about what can I yank out of her. It's what can I give to her to be a blessing to her. Uh, Biblical love, as you know, is about giving. It's never about being selfish. It's never about what I get. And just note this as well. Giving a gift with the intention of getting something on the back end doesn't meet the qualification of giving selflessly, right? And we all do that, right? You know, if I, if I take my friend Michael to lunch and I think, you know, if I, if I buy, take him to a $15 lunch, maybe he'll take me to a $20 lunch. 
30. There you go. So is that is that really a gift to Michael? Does that honor my friendship with Michael? Absolutely not. I'm, I'm using him to get something from him. And people will use sexuality within marriage in the same way. That's not a gift. If all I'm doing is I want to give you this gift simply so that you can do something for me, that's not a gift. Um, and that's that's not what God has intended. Uh, Paul Tripp writes this, Sex is also purified and protected by a second community of love. Love for your neighbor, who in this case happens to be your spouse. Illicit sex never treats another as an object of affection. Illicit sex is never motivated and shaped by self-sacrificing love for another. Illicit sex never wants what is good for another. Illicit sex doesn't willingly submit to another's needs. Illicit sex doesn't answer the higher call to be part of what God is doing in another's life. Illicit sex always replaces relational love with entitled, demanding, selfish, personal pleasure. Illicit sex is all about me to the detriment of you. Illicit sex objectifies and dehumanizes another. You become less to me than God's image bearer. You are reduced to little more than an object for my momentary sexual pleasure. Illicit sex denies the second great commandment, uproots sex from its God-intended community, and plants it in a world of individual pleasure where it was never meant to germinate and grow. End quote. Isn't that helpful? Um, Because sexuality is a gift to your spouse, you will give what is meaningful to her, not what is meaningful to you. It's about her. Um, I have a friend who I was counseling with. I don't remember exactly how long he and his wife had been married at the time, but they'd been married about 25 years or something. And he still was hearkening back to their marriage night when things didn't go according to plan, which is not unusual. I tell couples all the time, It may not work the first time. It's okay. It's an adventure. And part of the fun is figuring out how to make it work. So it may not work. And he was indignant 25 years. And he said this, I'm an Italian stallion. I have a reputation to live up to. And she ruined it. It was astounding. They stayed married as long as they did. They are not married now anymore and that was a significant part of their problems and it just it it just clouded everything about their physical union for decades because marriage excuse me because sex and marriage is a gift what do you do for a gift somebody gives you a gift i'm going to pick on michael because i know michael if i give if i reach into my wallet and give michael a 20 dollar bill what's michael going to say Thank you. (laughs) Somebody gives you a gift. What do you say? Thank you. I'm grateful. Um, Ephesians 5. Just maybe put this in in your note in the side margin there. Ephesians 5 talks about walking in love. Verses 1 and 2 as an imitation of Christ. And then he uses in verses 3 and 4 six kinds of sexual sin that should be put off. 
immorality, impurity, greed shouldn't be named among you, no filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting which aren't fitting. So put off all these sexual sins. And then he gives one antidote. That's what you put off. What, is you, what do you put on instead? And he says, instead, rather, giving of thanks. So if you want to cultivate a biblical mindset towards sexuality within the context of marriage, give thanks. So one of my regular assignments, whether it's a couple or a single, say your assignment this week is come up with 25 reasons to be thankful for your sexual life as it stands today. So if you're single and you want to be married and you're not, 25 reasons for you to be thankful. 25 expressions of gratitude. Or you're married and there are physical problems so that you can't come together as often as you'd like. 25 reasons to be thankful. 25 reasons why you're struggling, right? So whatever the issue, 25 reasons to give thanks. Because you want to cultivate in them this mindset, I've been given a gift and however the Lord has given me that gift, my responsibility is to be thankful. Um, So it's all about giving. It's not about getting. Every sexual aberration and every sexual sin is going to be traced to a discontentment with these principles. And so we want to help them think in right ways. Principle five. God has created both husband and wife with equal ability to satisfy each other. Notice verse five. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That word authority means control. In the area of intimacy, the husband has control over his wife. Why? So that he can please her. And the wife has authority and control over the husband's body. Why? So that she can please him. I don't have control over my wife's body so I can please myself. Right? It's not about me. It's about the giving of a gift to her. The control is never for personal benefit. So you turn this passage on its head if you go to your wife and say, I have authority over your body tonight, 8 o'clock, here's what I want. That's not what he means. That's the direct opposite of what he means. He means you have, you have control over her body so that you can give her something that would be a gift to her, pleasing to her, satisfying to her. Notice this again. The husband and wife have the same command. There's a mutuality here, a commonality for them. Um, They both should be seeking to initiate the pleasing of each other. I was uh, counseling with a couple that had been married about 10 years. And um, they were wrestling through um, some issues. and, And I just off the cuff asked, well, how does how does she respond when you initiate? And he just gave me a blank look. I said, well, okay, let me rephrase the question. When you ask for intimacy at night, what kind of response does she give you? He said, I don't know how to answer that because I've never had to initiate. She, I said, she, you've been married 10 years. She's initiated every time? Yeah. Because of the nature of his job, she was fearful that he might fall into immorality. And so she initiated so often he never had a need to initiate. 
And brothers and sisters, that turns this on its head. I said, okay, we need to look at 1 Corinthians 7. There needs to be mutuality of caring for one another and giving this gift. You, you both have a responsibility in that area. Sexual intimacy also tests your willingness to submit to your, your mate's authority. Am I willing to do what is best for him or her? Am I willing to do what is pleasing to him or her? And, and this, this really removes the, this myth about sex is for him and romance is for her. No, no, no. It's, it's all about both of you. And can you submit to the other and being willing, be willing to serve each other in the gift that wants to be given and the gift that wants to be received? Here's a common question. Don't husbands and wives have different levels of sexual desire? Um, I've not done an explicit poll. I don't know that I've ever seen anything written on this, but uh, anecdotal evidence tells me yes. Um, very often... And pretty regularly, uh, there's different levels of desire. What God's word teaches us in this passage is that we are to sexually satisfy our mates. We're not to focus on our own level of desire. It's not about me. It's about what kind of gift can I give my wife? It's not about counting the number of days since we've done it and she owes me. It's a matter of, can I give her a gift? Um, This also means that the proverbial headache or disinterest from one mate cannot control the relationship. It means that one who has greater desires and longings than the other needs to temper those desires in order to minister to and serve the other. And it means that one who has a lesser desire needs to increase that desire or increase willingness in order to serve the other. And you're going to have to come to a, an agreement on that and what that looks like. So let me, let me remove it. Give everybody a chance to breathe a little bit. And let me move it to another context. Years and years ago, Regine and I were um, renting a house. They'd done a bunch of improvements to the house. They'd replaced the air conditioning and done a bunch of renovation in the kitchen. And I told her when they when they did that work, I said, you know, um, probably when the lease comes up, they're going to want to increase the rent. So let's just be prepared for that. And so sure enough, the guy showed up, I don't know, a month before the lease was up and said, hey, what are you guys planning to do? Are you going to stay? Yeah, we'd like to stay. Well, we're probably going to need to raise the rent. And I said, okay. He said, and I got braced for what he was going to say. And he said, so uh, you just be thinking about a number that you want to do and we'll be thinking about a number and then maybe we can talk in a week or so. I said, great. So he came back a week later and he said, have you thought about a number? And I said, yeah. I said, have you thought about a number? Yeah. He said, you go first. (laughs) And so I gave him my number and then he gave me his number. My number was higher than his number. And I just started laughing. I said, I think we can come to an agreement here. Right. It's the same thing in marriage. Look, if your goal is I want to serve my wife, if your goal is I want to serve my husband, you're going to be able to come to an agreement, even when there are differing, uh, differing desires. Um, What about a couple that has sex rarely? Once a quarter. Once a year, twice a year, Christmas and birthday. Uh, You laugh. Uh, It's not infrequent, even within the context of the church. 
You want to ask some questions. Why are they having sex so rarely? Is it a schedule issue? Are there medical issues? Is there unresolved conflict? Is there adultery, pornography, self-gratification, anger? What's going on? You've got a lot of data gathering to figure out. Um, what the apostle is really clear about is we don't have a right to withhold. And if withholding is going on, the problem isn't sex. The problem is something else that's driving the decisions they're making. Everything I do, I do what I do because I, what? Want what I want. And I want what I want. Why? I think what I think or I believe what I believe. Right? So there's an underlying thought pattern, belief pattern that's driving desires that are driving what I do. So if they're infrequent, they're being unbiblical, don't just jump in and say, well, you guys need to go home and have sex. I mean, there is a time to do that and I've assigned that. Um but not until we've worked through the other issues. Um, I had one couple I counseled. They were, he told me in the first session, he said, we've been married, I can't remember, 20, 22 years. He said, more than half our married life, we've been celibate. At the moment they came to me, they hadn't had sex in four years, in their early 40s. And so it would have been easy to say, well, go home and have sex, you're disobedient. Well, well, that's true. But there were all kinds of issues that needed to be worked through. And over eight or ten weeks, we worked through all those issues. And finally about week eight or ten, I said, okay, this is the week. And I gave the assignment. Your assignment this week is to go home and have sex at least once. Okay. Kind of sheepish. Came back the next week. They were sitting on the couch in front of me. So, time check homework. Did you have sex this week? Yes. (laughs) Maybe more than once. Great. And they they did amazingly well. It's a great story. I wish I could tell you the whole story, but they did amazingly well after that uh, because they were convinced of their need to give to each other. Principle six, sex is to be regular, reciprocal, and continuous. Notice verse five. Stop depriving one another. The depriving is a failure to fulfill one's duty for selfish reasons. It's, it's what I want. So it's that person that's saying we shouldn't even touch each other, right? And they've, they've fallen into that pattern. And one person has unilaterally said we're stopping for selfish reasons. And Paul lays out in this verse three conditions for abstinence within marriage. Listen to me. All three have to be met. If a couple's going to be abstinent, they have to meet all three of these requirements. Number one, it is a mutual agreement. So the husband and wife both say, let's put this aside, let's put our physical union aside for this season. Right? And that leads to the second thing. It has a definite end. Every couple I've counseled that hasn't had sex on a regular basis has always just fallen into it. We just... We just developed that habits. It was work schedule. It was for a time it was pornography. And even though I'm not looking at pornography anymore, we just have developed bad habits and we don't come together. No, Paul says it's, it's only for a definite period. If you're not going to have sexual relationships, you have to define the length of it, right? So it, stop depriving except by agreement for a time. You've got to define the time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. It has to have a spiritual purpose. It can't just be, well, we want to stop because. No. 
We want to stop, so we want to give our full attention to this aspect of our spiritual lives. He says here prayer, I think broadly he just means something that's going on spiritually so that you can attend to that. It's kind of like fasting, undistracted devotion to Christ. But you can't fast all the time, right? You can fast for a season, but eventually you've got to eat or you're going to die. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's got to, it's got to fit those parameters. Three more considerations that you also need to notice in this verse. You need to limit abstinence in marriage so that Satan's purposes are thwarted, right? So come back together again. At the end of the time, you come back together. You have physical, sexual union again. Why? So that Satan will not tempt you. So so that you can thwart Satan's purposes. He wants to destroy you. I want you to notice this as well. uh, Abstinence is permitted. It's not commanded. There will be couples that never have periods of abstinence in their marriage, and that's absolutely fine. There's not, a, there's not a time when you say we have to set this aside. It is permitted. It's not commanded. It's not an obligation. Spiritual life, thirdly, is never to be a pretext for denying your mate. Oh, I just want to pray more today. No, no, no. That's not what he means. That's manipulation. That's, that's, that's doing something to get what I want. It's not giving a gift. And so Paul would say, if you're denying, stop it. Even if it's even if you're wanting spiritual purposes, you don't have a right on your own to stop. So here's a question. Just how often should couples have sex? Here's what one writer noted about the historicity of answering that question. Between the third and tenth centuries, church authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on Saturdays. Wednesdays, oh, and Fridays. And also during the 40-day fast periods before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost, all for religious reasons. They kept adding feast days and the days of the apostles to the prescription, as well as the days of female impurity, until it reached the point that, as historian John Boswell has estimated, only 44 days a year remained available for marital sex. Human nature being what it is, the church's prescriptions were enthusiastically ignored. (laughs) But it is a question, isn't it? How often? So here's what I say. Sex should be often enough to satisfy each other. Sex should be often enough to avoid temptation. And sex should be considerate, preferring each other. I haven't given you a timeline. I haven't said how many times a week, a month, a year. And that's intentional. Every couple's going to be a little bit different. But it needs to fit these requirements. Satisfying, avoiding temptation, preferring. Okay. We're going to skip 7, 8, 9 because I've given you all that. Okay. Principle 10, also in 1 Corinthians 7, a little bit later in the chapter. I'm sorry? In, in, in the handout. Yeah. Did you get the handout? Okay. Yeah. All that, all that is there. So both sex and celibacy are God's gracious gifts and you should use them graciously. So verse 7, 
I wish all men would remain even as I myself am. Uh, verse 8, to the married and, and widows, it is better that they remain as I. If they don't have self-control, verse 9, let them marry. So a couple of principles from that. Everybody has a gracious gift from God, some for celibacy, some for marriage. Whichever gift you have, use it for the glory of God. So however God has graced you, use it for His glory. All right, I have two minutes. What are you going to teach your counselees about biblical sexuality? You're going to want to help them renew their mind. I don't think I have many blanks here, do I? Yeah, so you're going to, you guys are smart counselors, so you're going to know how to fill this in. Renew your mind. Sex is, what kinds of things should they be thinking? They should be thinking things like sex is an act of worship. It's not about me. It's about worshiping God and demonstrating that I'm living for his glory. Sex is about obedience. I'm submitting myself either to the obedience of God or I'm rebelling against his authority and disobedience and I'm crowning myself king of the universe and making everybody subject to me. Sex is a heart revealer. It's not a heart solution. So again, that goes to the issue of are there times to assign sexual union between a husband and wife? Yes, but make sure you've dealt with the heart first. Sex is a gift to give, not a right to take. I hope, I hope you've heard me. I've tried to emphasize that multiple ways uh, through our time together. I'm seeking to be a blessing to my spouse, not to take from him or her. And sex is a delight in the context of marriage. Um, one of the things my dad did tell me, though he's very vague and veiled about it, he said, son, it's a little bit of heaven on earth. He's absolutely right. It is. It's, it's one of the greatest gifts God has given us. But it's only delightful in the context and within the boundaries that God has created and decreed everywhere else. It's always going to leave a bitter taste. What are you going to help them put off? You're going to help them put off every perversion of God's sexuality. You're going to help them put off manipulating and pleading and forcing relationships, uh, forcing relations with each other. You're going to help them put off anger and bitterness and resentment when I don't get what I want. And there are going to be times when you don't get what you want. And you want to give a gift and you have a desire as well. And you don't get it. And you don't have a right to be angry and bitter. What are you going to put on? You're going to put on the mind of Christ. Feed your soul on the scriptures. Memorize and read and pray so that you're more like Christ. Um, You're going to give acts of service for your spouse as well as for others. I'm thinking there particularly if someone's not married that they're going to find other expressions of of serving others. You're going to give sexuality to your spouse as an expression of your love for him or her and of your love for Christ. And you're going to thank God for every act of intimacy and every quote-unquote denial. It's all a gift that God has given you. To be sexually fulfilled, glorify God in your body. By serving your spouse and his or her needs above your own, sex in marriage is your dutiful, joyful gift to your spouse, not a privilege to be selfishly compelled. We don't use these principles to beat up our spouses and to say, you owe me. No, no, no. I owe you. And if it's not a gift, if it's a get and not a gift, then I'm satisfied if you say no. And if you're married and in conflict over sex and the frequency of it and the style of it, if you will, the singular issue for you to address is how has my selfishness 
uh, impacted and influenced this conflict. That's the issue. Your heart, your desire, your selfishness.